The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. There's a famous saying that is often attributed to Augustine regarding essential beliefs of Christianity. The statement is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Very concise, very biblical, wonderful statement, but it was actually written by a 17th century German theologian by the name of Meldenius. Um, it first appeared in a tract calling for Christian unity during the Thirty Years' War, which lasted from 1618 to 1648. Now, while that might be marginally interesting for a couple of the history buffs in the room, the bigger point that I am trying to make is that there were three groupings or categories for essential beliefs, and that is essentials, non-essentials, and then the kind of the broader category of all things. And my question is, what are the essential beliefs of Christianity? What are the non-negotiables? Is there a specific list that all branches, all denominations within Christianity hold in common? Is there a list out there? Well, the answer is no. Depending upon the specific list or resource that you were looking at, this list of beliefs could range anywhere from 3 to 30 or more different beliefs. Now, generally speaking, the essential beliefs all come back to beliefs and doctrines regarding salvation because it is those beliefs that are necessary for a person to become a Christian to begin with. Norman Geisler kind of summed it up. He's a very prominent theologian. He summed it up with these words, and I quote, There are three stages of salvation for the believer. Justification, freedom from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, freedom from the power of sin. And glorification, freedom from the presence of sin. Each of the essential doctrines deal with one of these. End of quote. Very concise. I like the fact he kind of brought it in under three primary headings. All of those are absolutely wonderful. There's another pretty well-known guy. His name is Hank Hanegraaff, also referred to as the Bible Answer Man. And he has a list of eight essential beliefs all coming around the acronym doctrine. And once again, all of these are also connected back to some aspect of salvation. So on these, the D would be for deity of Christ. It's the idea that Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. And by that, he vindicated those claims by living a sinless life and as well as manifesting power over nature, fallen angels, disease, and even death itself. The O would be for original sin. Sin describes any thought, word, or deed that is failing to meet God's standard of holiness and perfection. The C, here's a fun word, it's the word canon, not the kind that goes bang, bang, but rather this is a canon that is used of scripture. It means a measurement, of a standard or measurement. Whenever you're talking about it in reference to scripture, it is by scripture that we understand God's nature and our depravity and his gospel as well as our redemption. The T would stand for Trinity. We spent a couple of weeks discussing Trinity a while back. That is the belief in one God who has eternally manifested himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The R would be for resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundational belief of Christianity. It's the cornerstone of the faith. It is a belief that we celebrate and we talk about every Easter. The I would be for incarnation. 
That is the idea of God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. If you're wondering how this connects back into salvation, it would be that as the God-man, Jesus lived a sinless human life, he died a sinner's death, and he sufficiently atoned for the sins of the world. That was only possible because of the incarnation. The end would be for new creation. Every person who is born again is a new creation in Christ. Jesus' resurrection from the dead inaugurates the renewal of all things. The new creation of faithful believers and the new creation of the natural world will be consummated with the coming resurrection when Jesus returns as ruling and conquering king. And then the last of those is E for eschatology. That is the study of end times. Now, while many Christians debate secondary issues related to end times, we are all united in the belief that Jesus will come again, gather the elect, and usher in the resurrection of all things. The just will be resurrected to life, and the unjust will be resurrected to eternal punishment and separation from God. Now, let's just pause there. First, let me state the obvious. You all have just heard more doctrine than most Christians will hear in a year. And you survived. So kudos for you. You, you hung in there for all three and a half minutes of that. Um, the second thing is that of the eight essential beliefs that I just listed, three are directly connected to the idea of resurrection. While resurrection is a word that is front and center every single Easter Sunday, it is also a word that is essential to Christian belief as well as relevant in everyday life. So in John chapter 5, the section we're about to get into, Jesus specifically gives key ideas related to the concept of resurrection. When we left off in John, I guess this was now a couple of months ago, we were in verses 17 through 24, and Jesus had just outraged his religious opponents by claiming to be God. And he went very specifically on two realities. His claims were based on two key realities, that he had the authority to give life, and he had the authority to judge. And in verse number 24, he showed how those two realities affect sinners. And that is, sinners who believe the message he shared will have eternal life. Sinners who reject the message that he shared will be judged. Today, we're going to see how this idea of resurrection now impacts those same two groups of people, those who are believers as well as those who are unbelievers. Now, this morning, I am going to try my best to make a confusing topic as simple as possible. But I also want you all to know that this discussion can take any number of directions, and many times it leads to more arguments than it does unity in the faith, which is interesting because this is to be a uniting truth, something that brings all believers together. The reason I want to spend as much time on it as I am today is if resurrection is this essential to Christian belief and doctrine, and we believe what we believe matters, Every one of your actions is based upon a belief. If that is true, how does this topic of resurrection impact every single one of us? So I invite you to go with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John's Gospel, chapter number 5. John's Gospel, chapter number 5. We will be in verses 25 through 29. I am speaking this morning on the subject, the relevance of resurrection. As my childhood pastor used to say on Sundays like this, you need to put on your thinking cap this morning. 
Okay, this is not like a devotional thought, like three ideas for a happier you. We're, we're getting into very deep theology this morning, but it's some that I believe you are more than capable of being able to understand as well as to apply. So let's read the text. We'll pray and move on. Verse 25 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave, they gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of of judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you give us incredible clarity in your word. May your spirit guide us into truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus starts with familiar words. Truly, truly. It's a phrase that was used to grab the reader's attention and to introduce an unarguable declaration by Jesus. It is another way where Jesus is basically saying, pay attention, what I'm about to share is extremely important. Now, after grabbing the reader's attention, Jesus gives a seemingly paradoxical statement about an hour that is coming and now is. How can an hour be coming and here all at the same time? Well, there's two ways of looking at that statement. First, while Jesus offered spiritual life to all who believe his words, the full expression of his grace would not be manifested until the day of Pentecost with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So the full hour is coming with the Spirit's arrival, but now is in the fact that someone could experience spiritual life based upon believing the truths of Christ. Here's another way of looking at that. Believers, all believers experience two types of resurrection, spiritual and physical. There is an immediate spiritual resurrection that takes place when those who were dead in trespasses and sin now experience eternal life. That is, they pass from death into life. It is a spiritual resurrection. But there will also be a future physical resurrection that will happen according to God's eschatological timetable. So in that sense, there is an hour that is coming with a physical resurrection and now is in which there is a spiritual resurrection. Now let's pause here. This text is going to describe four types of resurrection. Now, if you happen to have a Bible that puts like little subnotes above a section of Scripture, you will notice a lot of those little notes say two resurrections. So why does your Bible say two resurrections and I'm describing four resurrections? Well, it is all about how you group them together. So on a broad sense, it would be two resurrections and there's a spiritual and there's a physical. But Jesus was very specific in breaking down other aspects of this future physical resurrection. So with that being said, I want to try to keep in the flow of what Jesus was doing in the specifics of the text. It's important for us to understand how he was using the word resurrection and why. So here's the first one that's in your notes. Resurrection 1. Jesus described the spiritual resurrection of lost sinners into eternal life. 
Now, I've been very, very careful on my wording on these. Jesus described the spiritual resurrection of lost sinners into eternal life. So think of it like this. Apart from Christ, everyone has sinned and everyone is considered spiritually dead. It doesn't matter whether or not somebody is moral, whether or not somebody does good deeds, whether or not somebody is religious. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. It's just that they cannot remove our sin, nor can they reconcile us to God. So not only has everyone sinned, but there were devastating consequences that came with that sin. And that is those who have sinned are spiritually dead. That's what we find in Romans 6.23. It says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we earned for a life of rebellion against God is spiritual death, separation from God. Ephesians 2 tells us that prior to Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sin. So to be spiritually dead means to be insensible to the things of God, completely unable to respond to him. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. A dead person doesn't need religion. They're dead. A dead person is not in a morality competition with every other dead person. In fact, one dead corpse is not any deader than another corpse. Okay, that's bad grammar, but hopefully you get the point of what I'm talking about here. Do you know what a dead person needs? Life. That's exactly it. A dead person doesn't need religion. A dead person needs resurrection. They need someone who can bring life out of death. Now, this is a place where properly diagnosing the problem changes everything. Here's what I mean by that. If you don't pay close attention to what I'm about to say, you're going to think I'm teaching heresy. Now, it looks like I got every eye coming this way. Okay. And that's exactly what I need. Here, here's, here's what I mean by this. If you think your problem is that you've messed up a little bit along life's path, if you think your problem is you've made a few bad choices, if you think you're a relatively good person who just needs a kind of gentle nudge to keep you on the right path, then any old religion will do. Okay, because morality, discipline, good deeds, and direction would be a part of any religion. But if, listen, if you understand that your problem is that you're spiritually dead, then only Jesus can help you. That's, that's why this is important. You need someone with life who is willing to give life to someone who is spiritually dead. That's Jesus. That's a part of what makes Christianity different than any other religion around the world. Christianity begins in a completely different place. Other religions will teach that we are basically good and we just need a little bit of help. Christianity teaches that we are spiritually dead and need to be resurrected to new life. It, if you begin with the wrong premise, you will end with the wrong answer. Jesus is the solution. Those who understand you are spiritually dead apart from Christ, you'll recognize you need spiritual life. So that's the second part of what verse 23 in Romans 6 was all about. Remember, the wages of sin is death, 
But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus offers eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. Now, with that as our backdrop, I want us to reread what Jesus' offer was in verse 24 as well as in verse 25. Look back into verse 24. We covered this last time. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, here it is, but has passed out of death into life. They go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. They are spiritually resurrected. Now, this transition from life to death is a crucial belief within Christianity. That's the reason why Paul charged the Romans, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, Romans 6.13. It's the reason he told the Colossian believers, when you were dead in your transgression, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It's the reason why John describes salvation as having passed from death into life. That's spiritual resurrection. Now, how does it happen? He tells us in verse 24. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. Do you remember this verse? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Okay, again, the, the tie-ins through Scripture are absolutely clear. He says it again in verse number 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead, those who are spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, who is Jesus, and those who hear will live. All right, now this is really important. You all are hanging in there strong right now. So uh, congratulations. This, this is really important. Jesus was not teaching that everyone who listens to the gospel will be saved. Okay? He uses the word hear. That describes give ear to, are inclined to, are savingly respond to the voice of the Son of God. It's very possible for someone to hear the gospel and not believe the gospel. It's possible for somebody to hear the gospel and reject the gospel. It's possible for someone to hear the gospel and not even contemplate the gospel. So a person passes from death to life when they hear God's word and savingly believe in what he has shared. That's the first resurrection. It is a spiritual resurrection. Here's the second of those. And by the way, that was the longest one. Here's the second one. Jesus alluded to his ability to resurrect himself. Read verse 26 with me again. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Now he drops that right in the between these conversations about resurrection. Here's why that is important. Our life is derived from others. His life is original within himself. And Jesus has been showing this through John's gospel all the way back into chapter 1. 
In chapter 1, John spoke of Jesus saying, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In chapter 3, it focused on the fact we must be born again and how Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. In chapter 4, he tells the woman at the well, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. In chapter 5, he tells us that he gives life to whom he wishes. Verse number 21, Jesus is the life giver. Jesus has life in himself. If you'll remember, that's what the big focus of John's gospel is all about. These things have been written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this idea that Jesus has life that is within him is found all throughout John's gospel because he has life in himself. Because he gives life to whom he wishes. Because he holds the keys of death and the grave in his hands. That's why he's called the prince of life. Acts chapter 2 verse 24. He is the resurrection and the life. John chapter 11 verse 25. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14 verse 6. He is so powerful that 2,000 years ago, he voluntarily laid his life down And three days later, he victoriously raised his own life up. According to John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. He has life in himself. Now we need that. Because we don't have life that is original within ourselves. In fact, we are only here because our parents gave us life. We are only here because God allowed that life to come to fruition in this world. We are dependent upon others. He was not. He is not a created being. He is God. Number three. Resurrection three. Jesus described the future physical resurrection when believers are raised from the dead. Now, resurrections three and four are both about future events. Sometime in the future, according to God's timetable, the souls of the righteous dead who are now in heaven with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, and the souls of the wicked dead who are now in torment in Hades, Luke chapter 16, will be given resurrected bodies fit for eternity. It is a mistake for us to assume that these two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, happens at the same time. In verse number 29, Jesus very clearly separated the two. He made that same distinction in Luke 14, 14. And if you go into Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, it also mentions two resurrections. The first consisting of the righteous dead before the millennium, the second of the unrighteous dead at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. In other words, there's going to be a physical resurrection for those who are righteous as well as those who are unrighteous. Now, there are a lot, and I do mean a lot of questions related to the believer's physical resurrection. For 2,000 years, a concept that is supposed to bring unity has uh, pretty much brought division. And the reason is because there's different places in Scripture where people are thinking, is that the resurrection? Is that the resurrection? Is that the resurrection? For example, there are some who will teach that the resurrection takes place at the rapture of the church. 
Others say it's the second coming of Christ. Others teach it happens before the millennium. Others teach it's going to happen after the millennium. But here's the big point. The point is not when. The point is what. And that is he is going to raise believers and give us a new body that is fit for eternity. The universally agreed upon truth is that there will be a physical resurrection of believers according to God's timetable. That now brings us to resurrection four. Jesus described the future physical resurrection when unbelievers are raised for judgment. When unbelievers are raised for judgment. Now, for just a moment, let's look at this again in verse 28 and then the second part of verse number 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and here's that second one, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now he says an hour is coming in which this is going to occur. Think of it like this. For believers, resurrection has two parts. There's a spiritual resurrection, that is when God took us from being dead in trespasses and sin to alive in Christ. And there will be a future physical resurrection, which happens according to God's timetable. For unbelievers, there is only a physical resurrection. Why? Because they were not resurrected spiritually. They never moved from death into life. They remained spiritually dead and separated from God. So Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, teaches that the resurrection of unbelievers will take place just before Jesus ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. At that time, unbelievers will be given eternal bodies, listen, not glorified bodies, but eternal bodies that they might be judged by Christ. In keeping with their condemnation, their eternal bodies will be suited for eternal punishment. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 15. On that day, let this thought sink in. On that day, the dead, both small and great, will stand before Jesus as their judge. Today, you and I are in an era in which we look at Jesus as redemptive Savior, the one who has given his life that we might experience eternal life. That's, that's the Jesus that we see. That's the Jesus who came, suffering servant. One day, though, when he returns, he is not suffering servant. He comes back as victorious and righteous judge. And it says, on this day, the unrighteous dead will stand before Jesus, who is their creator. And they give an account of their deeds. Now, according to this, Jesus was saying that those who will stand before him, based on verse 29, it says the believers are characterized as those who do good deeds and unbelievers as those who do evil deeds. Jesus was not teaching salvation by works. But rather, he clearly taught that good works are an evidence of salvation. Not the cause, 
but evidence. And that is Jesus called our good works fruit, spiritual fruit, according to Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. Those who believe in the Son, as a result of that, will do good deeds, while those who reject the Son will continue on in evil deeds, according to chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. Now, we have covered a lot of information this morning. Okay, there's a little smoke coming out of some ears right now. People are kind of like trying to process it. I understand. But here's, here's why I want you to see this is immediately relevant to every person in this room. According to Scripture, everyone has sinned apart from Christ. The penalty of that sin is spiritual death. Spiritually dead people do not need religion. They do not need morality. They do not need good works. They need life. They need resurrection. They need someone who can bring life out of death. That means everyone. So there are those, according to verse 24, who when they hear this message, they will believe and they will pass from death to life. They will be spiritually resurrected right then in that moment. That is, they come from those who are dead in trespasses and sin to being made alive in Christ. Spiritual resurrection. But it also says that those who reject will continue in that, and they will move towards a future judgment. So, Again, what is that message? What's the message that he came to give? It, it is this simple, and it is this freeing, and it is this good. That's why it's called the good news. Here it is. You and I were created for a relationship with God. Our sin separated us from that relationship. There wasn't anything we could do to make things right. Why? We were spiritually dead. Dead people don't act. According to 2 Corinthians, we were spiritually deceived. Deceived people don't believe. But basically, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sin. He rose from the dead on the third day that we might have eternal life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Christ. So basically, the good news is this. You might be spiritually dead right now, but you don't have to be if you place faith in Jesus. You might have come into this life and a life of problems, a life of sin, a life of issues, and you might think there's no hope for you. Listen, Jesus specializes in those who are spiritually dead. Religion cannot help. There's nothing wrong with discipline, nothing wrong with good works. It just cannot reconcile a sinner to a holy God, and it cannot breathe new life into a person who is spiritually dead. The good news is you can have life in Christ. That's why the resurrection is important. Somebody might say, Paul, I've already done that. Praise God. But I'll guarantee you there are people in your family, in your neighborhood, in your circle of friends who have not. And if you and I don't know how to share the difference between spiritual death and spiritual life and why Jesus is not like every other religious leader, we miss opportunities to extend that gospel message, that good news to those that are around us.
So we're going to close this morning. And in each of our services today, I'm going to give people an opportunity to respond to this incredible message of hope that comes through Christ. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow with me for a word of prayer. As heads are bowed at this time, I simply want to go through and say this morning, if you have never placed faith in Jesus, and not that you just believe he's a great teacher or religious leader, but if you have not placed your eternal destiny in his hands, that you recognize that you are a sinner, that your sin has separated you from a holy God, that you recognize he died to pay the sin debt that you owed, that he rose that you might experience why you were created to begin with, eternal life. If you know that you have never done that and you have a desire for that, there's something inside that is saying he's talking to you. I want to encourage you this morning. Don't turn away that voice. I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer. This would be between you and God. Not between you and me, but I'm simply leading you in a prayer of repentance at this time. Heavenly Father, I know that there are people in the room right now that have experienced this spiritual resurrection, but there are those who haven't. So Lord, may you draw them to yourself. So if today, if you have a desire to know that you are right with God, that you are spiritually whole, that you move from death to life. I want to encourage you to follow with me in prayer. And you're praying this between your heart and God's. God, I know that I've sinned. And I know my sin has separated me from you. I pray today that you would forgive me of that sin. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe he rose again on the third day. As best I know how, I place faith in what he has done for me. With head still bowed, eyes still closed, this is just a time with you and God. I, I would love to rejoice with you this morning. I'm not going to ask people to come forward, but this morning, if you have prayed with me this morning, would you lift your hand wherever you might be for just a moment? Thank you. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning, God, would you allow today to be that day when there are many people who come to know you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?